from Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Representative Mike Rogers of Alabama is on track to become the ranking member of the House Armed Services Committee in January. The House GOP Steering Committee voted for Rogers to become the top Republican on the committee over Mike Turner of Ohio and Rob Whitman of Virginia. Defense News reports Rogers was one of the architects of the Space Force when he was chair of the Strategic Forces Subcommittee. The Pentagon's chief information officer says the JEDI cloud contract is still up to date, even though its requirements are two years old now. Dana Deasy writes to Senate Finance Committee Chairman Charles Grassley, the contract quote, requires, quote, commercial parity at a comparable price to private sector customers. Breaking defense reports, the department estimates it spent about $5.3 million on the contract so far. The Defense Information Systems Agency's revised strategic plan includes operational changes because of the pandemic. DISA Director Vice Admiral Nancy Norton says planning efforts the agency started in 2019 laid the groundwork for pivoting to remote work. NextGov reports the main addition to the strategy is a tech roadmap for the next two years. The Senate and House are closing in on an appropriations deal that would include new provisions for research, development, testing and evaluations. Those provisions could result in the Defense Department playing what one observer calls a losing game. Bill Greenwald is visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, former Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Industrial Policy. Bill, welcome back. You refer me to a book, The Kill Chain, for that losing game comment. What do you mean by that? Yeah, the, uh, this is by uh, Chris Rose, uh, former staff director for Senator John McCain uh, on the Armed Services Committee. And he looks at the fact that we're spending so much time on platforms and not looking at the actual command and control and the, the interconnections and networks of the kill chain that are actually more important in competing with a great, great power like China. So when you explain it that way, it seems like a no-brainer. We should figure out first what it is we need to kill what it is we need to blow up, and then think about how we go about doing it. It's what are you seeing in the appropriations language that the chambers are considering, especially on your Senate side, that would get in the way of that, that would prevent that or in some other way inhibit it? Sure. Uh, both appropriations committees are focusing primarily on platforms because that's the way the budget process works. And uh, even probably more importantly, what we're seeing on the, on the Senate side is essentially a attempt on, on that, to slow down the new authorities that would bring these new capabilities to, to market faster. These include what's called mid-tier, other transactions, things like that. And, and that's very concerning, but I, the understanding is, is that they don't wanna go essentially being promised as, as they always are a, uh, a long-term uh, solution in, in the future and not having capability now. So they are doubling down, trying to get capability now that's, that's being produced, but uh, at the same time, they're attempting to slow down some of these new things that should be coming in in the next uh, year or two. What's the fix for this? Is it just a matter of trying to convince the right people to take this language out of the bill? Or is there something somewhere, somebody else, authorizers or something can do something about this? 
I'm afraid that the, the language is probably going to stay. That means it's going to be up to the Biden administration to decide how innovative they want to be and how much they want to push forward these new capabilities uh, that uh, this administration is set, set up for. Uh, I'm hopeful that uh, once they get their leadership in, they will see that there's really no alternative but to uh, uh, focus on, on these future near-term capabilities, not 20 years out, but, but near-term capabilities that can uh, change the balance of power in, uh, in East Asia. One of the, uh, an official at one of the innovation cells in the Defense Department told me recently that the whole kind of mission, the way that they look at it, is to work around the situation as it's been set up for them. Is this uh, potentially a solution, not a great one, not one I'm sure that Congress will like, but to continue to drive speed? Every uniformed official that I ever hear anything from um, talks about speed. We need to get these solutions in the hands of the warfighter as quickly as possible. When, when there's legislative language that proposes exactly the opposite, is just simply working around it a potential solution? Uh, not anymore. If they, if they essentially throw more process, more testing, more compliance on these uh, programs that are designed to go fast. And, and, and once you do that, there are no more workarounds. Essentially, what the appropriators are going after are the workarounds that the authorizers put in place so that the department could go fast. And instead, they are, are essentially sabotaging that language in such a way that it's just gonna, gonna stretch out. And in the meantime, the Chinese and the Russians and all our other allies, our, our adversaries are going faster. And that is just the, the situation that the Biden administration is gonna have to address and work with the appropriators to essentially let them know that this is not the proper uh, uh, way to go. You flagged for me the bill language and as I reviewed it, I scanned it, I confess, um, because I am not the legislative whiz that you are, Bill, but as I scanned this legislative language, I couldn't find a potential benefit given the context of the conversations that you and I have had before and the other conversations that I've had on this program. Who, who does this benefit if it slows the department down and, and cuts innovation potentially? Why is this even here? Uh, the, the benefit is still in the minds of those who believe that the 15 to 20 year process of developing systems is the uh, uh, right way to go. Thinking at it a little more cynically, whoever actually has current uh, 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 projects that are, 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 are coming out the, the production line would benefit from this as well, because if you slow down what potentially is gonna replace, you, you have to continue to, to produce what you have. I want to shift gears in the time that we have left, Bill. There's some language in uh, in the NDAA, um, and and there is, I didn't see anything in the appropriations uh, language that you flagged about reshaping the office of the Secretary of Defense. A lot of conversation around eliminating the Chief Management Officer position in uh, the on the, in the authorizing uh, committees. What's your sense of where that stands now, and what that could look like for the incoming administration? Well, I think this may be the, the CMO may be the crest of this uh, desire to centrally manage everything from the Office of Secretary of Defense. And it looks like both, both uh, authorizers have language in there. We'll see what comes out. But it, there, there is a desire to move faster, to decentralize, to get the, the decision making down the chain of command, 
while insight is, is provided up, up the chain of command. And uh, the CMO was, was a, a, a relic of that uh, older time. And I expect that uh, uh, it, it may morph into something entirely different. Bill Greenwald, thanks very much as always. Thank you. Up next, great power competition in the South China Sea. Straight ahead on Government Matters, a plan for deterrence in the region to reshape relations with China. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. The Biden administration will take office with the standoff in the South China Sea continuing. It's one of the most prominent theaters of the great power competition. Krista Wiegand is director of the Global Security Program at the Howard Baker Center for Public Policy at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. She's writing about the South China Sea in War on the Rocks. Krista, welcome. Thanks very much for coming on the program. You write in this piece, the new administration should seriously consider continuing some of the current U.S. strategies in the South China Sea. What is on the list of those policies that the new administration should continue, in your view? Well, the last few years, the Trump administration has increased uh, freedom of navigation operations, uh, which are referred to as phone ops. So that's something that really should be continued because that is a signal that the U.S. Uh, takes seriously, the South China Sea and particularly freedom of navigation. Another uh, strategy that really should be continued is joint military exercises with, uh, particularly with Southeast Asian allies, especially the disputants themselves, uh, Vietnam, Philippines, et cetera, but also our other allies, uh, Japan, Australia, and other allies outside the region, the U.K. and France and so on. You write in this piece, the most important U.S. objective in the South China Sea is to counter China's territorial and maritime claims. Is it too late, based on the uh, work that they've done on some of those islands where they basically built uh, military bases out of nothing? Well, yes and no. So it is probably a fait accompli for those built-up islands. However, one thing that the U.S. can do is work with other Southeast Asian countries and allies, security partners, to try to slow down the uh, deployment of further militarization uh, aspects, such as uh, putting putting more equipment on those islands. So that's one thing that, uh, the, that the U.S. can do. Another thing that the U.S. can do is really make it difficult, more difficult for China to uh, acquire further uh, maritime features in the South China Sea and, uh, and, and build up those, uh, those features as well. You also call in this piece for stronger support from U.S. allies. Who are the key allies in that region, and where are the, what are the relationships that maybe we're not maximizing now that we could maximize in a Biden administration? So one of the, the, the problems that the Trump administration had was, was signaling real credibility of the U.S. alliance uh, system in, in Asia in the last four years. So I think that's one place that the Biden administration will shift pretty drastically is making sure that allies in that region, particularly Japan and Australia, South Korea as well, uh, feel that they are, are, are well supported, but also that there's that the U.S. can play a, a strong role in supporting them uh, with, within these joint operations and joint military exercises and, and joint overall balancing against China. Uh, but at the same time, too, it's really important for the U.S. to signal Credibly to Southeast Asian security partners, such as Vietnam, Malaysia, Indonesia, and, and, and ally uh, the Philippines, uh, to to make sure that that they know the U.S. is 
willing to support them militarily, providing military transfers to them, military equipment uh, that, they, that they desperately need uh, in order to defend themselves against China. And the, most imp the reason that's so important is because all of those countries are being wooed by China economically. And so there's a challenge to make sure that the U.S. Uh, is, is actually allied and, and maintains those strong security partners with those countries rather than them shifting their, alliance, their allegiance to, uh, towards China. Bloomberg reported today that economically one of the uh, priorities of the Biden administration would be to reach out to allies and, and reassure those partners uh, rather than uh, taking China on uh, dead, you know, immediately. It sounds like that's the same thing that you're suggesting from a, a military national security perspective, that rather than confronting China directly, we work on cementing those partnerships in the region first. Yes, absolutely. Economically as well as militarily. It's very important uh, not just to challenge and confront China, uh, because we certainly want to have a decent relationship with China, particularly economically, with trade relations in particular, uh, but we need to make sure that we are not letting China just dominate uh, the region uh, economically, militarily, and, uh, and politically. I want to go back to the islands because that's been a big sticking point um, about in the dialogue about how we, we confront China over the last several years. You write in this piece, without logistical support, the remote outposts could be considered dead wood. It sounds like that my, what I take away from that, correct me if I'm wrong, please, is that maybe we shouldn't worry about those islands as much as we are right now. Maybe they're not as strategically important as we've made them out to be over the last several years. Am I maybe reading too much into your words there, Krista? Uh, no, not so much. I think that the, what that's referring to is if China is not able to effectively resupply those artificial islands that have been militarized, then they would be dead wood. So far, they have been able to do so fairly well. But that's something that the U.S. administration and its allies and security partners in the region could really work on, is making it difficult for China to resupply those islands. So the problem is right now that those, those islands, uh, which are really not islands, they're, they're artificial islands, uh, have the capabilities. They have fighters, they have bombers, they have long, uh, you know, long runways, uh, they have uh, anti-ship uh, missiles on them, and they can now reach... U.S. territories and U.S. bases, such as Guam, uh, and, and bases in, in southern Japan, and that's very concerning. So that's a, a major priority, is to make sure that those artificial islands are not further uh, militarized uh, as much as much as the U.S. is willing and capable uh, of, of doing that militarily. That is a little challenging because it could mean a risk of engaging uh, the Chinese Navy or Chinese mar uh, maritime forces, particularly the Coast Guard, and that's something that that, that gets really sticky and uh, a little risky. Krista Wiegand, thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you. Thank you. Up next, bringing military training and experiments into the 21st century. Straight ahead on Government Matters, a new approach to training to get the military ready to fight tonight. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. Welcome back. The Army's already started preparing for next year's Project Convergence. It will test the force's role in joint all-domain command and control at scale. All of the branches are studying how to improve training and experimentation to prepare for 21st century warfare. 
Thomas Mankin is president, chief executive officer of the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments. He's writing about training and defense news. Tom, welcome. Thanks very much for coming back on the program. The, the convergence of training and experimentation, I think, is critical. You and your colleague, Regan Koppel, take it up in this piece, and you write, an Indo-Pacific training and experimentation network will need to take account of the features of modern warfare. What are those features and what should the, all the parties involved take into account, Tom? Well, thanks. First off, it's, it's great to be with you. Uh, yeah, look, modern war, 21st century war, includes operations over long distances. So we need to think about training ranges and, and experimentation ranges that, that have a, a lot of distance. Multi-domain, you already touched on it. Uh, land, sea, air, electromagnetic spectrum, space. So we need to be able to incorporate those uh, those domains into training as well. And truth be told, there's there's not a lot of places uh, where we can where we can do those things currently. You cite in this piece something that I've been asking about JADC2 every opportunity I have, and that is what does the information exchange and what does the knowledge exchange look like among our partners in a, a, a multi-force battlefield sphere. You write, Australia-U.S. military collaboration is a case in point. Australia's Northern Territory is home to one of the largest training ranges operated by any U.S. ally. And you go on to detail the reasons why that's a benefit. What are we missing out on right now, Tom, in our collaborations with our allies? Yeah, uh, great question. I think there are all sorts of opportunities for, for collaboration. Again, Australia is a great case in point. Look at the Australian uh, Northern Territory outstanding training ranges, lots of land, <laughs> lots of ability to, to uh, employ, deploy forces over distance, lots of opportunities to uh, operate in uh, an electromagnetic environment um, that could you know, be used to simulate wartime conditions. Uh, the, you know, there are precious few places where we can do training and experimentation like that without impinging on civilian populations, without worrying about other, other considerations. Uh, and so I think working with our allies, uh, like Australia, like Japan, working with, uh, with friends like, like Singapore uh, in the Western Pacific, I think there are all sorts of opportunities to, to, to do that and do that to develop new approaches to, to combat and not just for the, for the services, not just for the joint force, but as part of, uh, of an alliance or, or as part of a coalition. What you're proposing there for that part of the world is something that has been part and parcel, one of the most important elements of the NATO alliance over the last 70 years. Is it time perhaps for some kind of more formalized alliance among people in that part of the world? We talked a little bit before we went on the air. NATO has worked well. CETO did not work well at all. It wouldn't work again a second time. But could something NATO-like in that region of the world work? I think that's that's a great question, and I think what we see is that you know our close allies in the region, and thinking uh, first and foremost about Australia and Japan, are already working not only closely with us, but closer and closer with each other. Uh, add India into the picture, and I, I don't I don't think we're going to be uh, having an alliance with India. But if you think about the quad that involves the United States, Japan, Australia, and India, I think there are opportunities to bring bring them in as well. Uh, and I think training, experimentation, uh, that offers a really good uh, venue to build 
those ties that could bear fruit in any number of ways. What's the biggest gap here that the Biden administration could potentially leverage? What are we not doing now that we could do more of or that we could start doing in the first place, Tom? Yeah, well, I think, you know, and uh, Admiral Davidson, the, the commander of uh, Indo-PACOM, has, has begun to lay out this, you know, lay out this vision as part of their uh, uh, their uh, proposal for a Pacific uh, training and experimentation architecture. But I think we have lots of different facilities, lots of different capabilities, both on U.S. soil and on allied soil that we can that we can knit together. And we can knit together if we make the investments in in the IT backbone. If we make investments in areas like 5G uh, to be able to pass uh, pass data at high rates, to be able to come up with a, a unified architecture for training and experimentation, live, virtual, and constructive training, really opens up some some uh, some pretty interesting possibilities as we move forward. We have uh, just about a minute left, Tom. But what it sounds to me like you're saying is we have the pieces that we need that architecture and maybe a strategic framework are really the only things missing. If we have the 5G, I mentioned JADC2, that strikes me as a reasonable, at least starting point for the exchange of the information securely, the exchange of the data securely. Am I hearing you right that we just need kind of an overarching strategy, a framework for putting all of this together? Yeah, that's right. And I think we, we've looked at the investments that would be required and they're, they're actually pretty modest. Um, but they do need to be made. Uh, and uh, if they are made, I think, again, the, the possibilities are, are, are pretty, uh, are pretty, pretty, uh, pretty inspiring. Tom Mankin, thanks very much as always. Great to have you back. Always a pleasure. I'm Sharice Hanner. Government Matters is always one click away whenever you want to get the latest in the business of government. Like us on Facebook, subscribe on YouTube, follow us on Twitter, and connect with us on LinkedIn. While you're on the go, tune into the Government Matters podcast on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and TuneIn. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.